0: We'll read this afternoon Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. As we turn there, let me pray. Oh Lord, we have asked you, trying God, to fill us with the Spirit, to lead us in the way everlasting, to open our eyes to behold the wonderful things out of your law, Lord, to teach us, for we must have no other teacher. We ask that the dear Holy Spirit, of whom we've been speaking, would he even now fulfill this ministry of illumining our understanding? Grant that as a servant looks up to his master and a maid servant to a mistress, we look up unto you, Lord, we open our mouths wide that you might fill them, or that you might come and speak to us. Anoint both the one who preaches and all who hear. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we're reflecting today on uh, Pentecost and missions. And we began this morning by noting the fact that there are uh, great events in history that are not repeated, but that have history long um, ramifications. And and consequences. We talked about the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution of the United States and how those were historical things, and we can observe them, particularly as we do on July 4th, the Declaration of Independence. Um, We also live in light of them, that they have shaped us as a country, many ways shaped us as individuals. And we use that analogy to speak about the relationship of what uh, God did on the day of Pentecost and the ongoing life of the church. The Pentecost itself was a historical event. It's not to be repeated. What God did on that day was to give His Holy Spirit to the New Testament church in a way far beyond what any of our fathers knew in the Old Testament church. Namely, that the Holy Spirit now uh, indwells everyone who is born again. And we all are filled with the Spirit, uh, and the Spirit then constitutes us as a church, as part of the church. And, but also, uh, in that first act of Pentecost, God uh, <clears throat> basically made His will known, uh, now that the church is to go from the narrow boundaries of Judaism to the ends of the earth, as people spoke in tongues, and all the nations of the earth, uh, in a sense, were gathered there to hear that. And so we, we dealt with the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us individually and as a church and equips us then for the task before us. Uh, but there's another relationship of these historical acts and um, life, and that is there are immediate radical effects as well. So we think about the Declaration of Independence. Well, there was immediately a Revolutionary War. It was a direct consequence of that... Declaration that was signed in 1776. Or as we think about the uh, Reformation, uh, Martin Luther's nailing uh, the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church it was a once and for all historical event, but there was immediate, powerful, earth-shaking ramifications that came from that as people took it off and took it to the printing press, and like wind, it swept around the world. Immediate historical acts with our historical class with immediate, radical consequences. Well, that's the other thing that we think about, the, um, about Pentecost. So this morning we looked at the general effect of Pentecost on missions. And now, this afternoon, we're going to consider the immediate, powerful effect then of Pentecost on the church and the principles from that that affect us still uh, today. So. Uh, After uh, Peter had quoted Joel, he then uh, preached the heart of this sermon where he set forth uh, the sin of the people in crucifying Christ, although it was according to the sovereign plan of God. He showed from Scripture that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and the risen, uh, exalted King, um, and then once again accused the people of the sin of putting him to death. Well, what happened then at the end of this sermon um, was really the first revival in the New Testament church. We have seen, we've seen revivals in the Old Testament church. Um, we know the concept of revival. The Spirit teaches us even in the prophets to pray for revival. But now what happened on the day of Pentecost was a fantastic revival, probably the greatest revival up to this point in the history of Christianity. There have been other revivals, but as we look at the revival, I want to make a parallel for you that revival is God's rare work, and at the bottom line, there's no difference in what God uses in revival and what God uses in in our everyday lives. Revival is simply a Holy Spirit sovereign intensification of what should be our normal experience as a church. So what I'm going to do this afternoon is as we look at three things that happened uh, there in in Pentecost, uh, to extract from those three things what we ought to be expecting, aiming for, longing for in our regular church activity with respect to evangelism and missions. So that's my focus this afternoon. And what I want to show you is that because of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the church labors in evangelism to see people come to Christ, to see the church grow, and to see disciples made. Because of this presence and power, it happened then, but it's with us now forevermore, because of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the church labors in evangelism. For three things, to see people converted, to see the church grow, and to see disciples made. So I'm going to break this out with three C's to help you. It's right after a heavy lunch. And by the way, people, I have to go to a lot of church lunches in my career, and uh, yours exceeds them all. <laughs> Thank you for all that great work. And the singing, that was up front. You see, you guys in the back miss out on all of this. Wonderful singing in this congregation, which always tells one a lot about a people of God, how you love the Lord. So anyway, three C's. What we have here is confidence, um, commitment, and care. Our call, look at call: confidence, commitment, and call. There's a confidence that God's going to save people. There's a commitment to church growth, and there's a call to discipleship. We begin then with confidence you know what happened Uh, let's uh, review quickly here as peter uh, wraps up the sermon once again in verse 36 calling them to accounting for their sin in verse 37 now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and they said to peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren what shall we do And then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. I just realized I had failed to read the scripture, so I'll keep going. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized... And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple... Breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, first we see here then this confidence um, for conversions. Consider three things the cry of convicted sinners, instruction to convicted sinners, and the response of convicted sinners. We begin with this cry. Oh, that we would hear this today as Peter is preaching in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest, Men and brethren, what shall we do? This word, cut to the heart, is the idea of a stallion pawing the ground. The Holy Spirit had mauled them. He had torn them apart. Joel, in the very chapter we looked at this morning, uh, says, Wren your hearts, not your garments. And the Spirit was rending their hearts. He brought this heart um, conviction of sin that leads to true repentance, a sight of their sin and its odiousness with also the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. To see the hatred, the odiousness of sin, God's hatred of it, and then to come with a holy resolve uh, after new obedience. Men, brethren, what shall we do? They were desperate. they have been brought to wit's end by the Holy Spirit. Have you been brought to wit's end by the Holy Spirit? Have you been brought to cry out, what must I do? Now, many of you have been raised in covenant families, and maybe they even don't know a day that you weren't trusting in Christ. Others of you came to Christ later. But regardless, those of you raised in covenant households, you remember, you've come to those times, haven't you? we have become aware of your sin, even though you were trusting Christ, but aware of your sin. And you cried out to God for mercy. Or like David who says, Remember not the sins of my youth. Brethren, what must we do? Have you asked God that question? Have you been brought to the point of conviction that uh, you know there's no other help, no other one who can do anything? to help you. And so the cry of the convicted sinner. Well then the instruction, verses 38 to 40. Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Peter's instruction is threefold. A call to repent, an encouragement to repent, and an exhortation to repent. He begins, then, with this basic instruction that we have in verse 38. Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins... Now, sometimes in the New Testament, the instruction, what shall we do, is repent. When the Philippian jailer had the same cry, it's believe. And sometimes we will have it together, repent and believe. To repent is to believe. Saving faith is to repent. You cannot separate them. They are Siamese twins. And so Peter is not ignoring faith here. He's simply saying, you must turn from your sins, you must take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ now as your only Savior. You must confess your sin in terms of His crucifixion and your rejection, but you must more broadly confess your sins of unrighteousness and wickedness, and you must take hold of the only one whom God has provided as the Savior of sinners. Instruction to repent. And then to be baptized. Now, Peter is not teaching here, as was not Ananias when he told Paul the same thing, that baptism in some way would wash away literally the stain of their sin. But water baptism has been appointed by God to be so closely connected to repentance and saving faith that just as God calls circumcision the covenant with Abraham and the covenant circumcision, he puts baptism here for the reality that by water baptism we are so identified with Christ. Water baptism then by the Spirit testifies to us that our sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of the perfect work of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And then he encourages them. He says, be uh, And you shall receive, the middle of verse 38, the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, this is all in the context, don't forget, of the gift of the Holy Spirit. They've gathered together. They've experienced the the outward signs. They've heard the gospel. Um, They know about the Holy Spirit. And now... He's telling them that if they will repent and take hold of Christ, they shall have the reality of that which they witnessed. They too shall be filled with the Holy Spirit. Born again, filled by the Holy Spirit, having the triune God dwell within them. And then he further encourages them by reminding them that the promise is to them and their children and to all who are afar off. The promise of the Holy Spirit is a promise to the church in all ages and forevermore. In Isaiah 59, 21, As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, that's your seed, nor from the mouth of your seed, seed says the Lord, From this time and forever. This is the new covenant promise. This is the promise that the Holy Spirit will be given to the church and never taken away. Now, Peter is repeating that. He says, This promise to receive the Holy Spirit upon remission of sins is to you and to your children. He's tying the New Testament covenant fulfillment into all of the Old Testament covenant promises. The covenant was always administered to the believer and to his seed. Now, you notice the second part of this encouragement. And as many as who are far off whom the Lord God will call. Now, the expression many who are far off is a technical expression from the Old Testament for the Gentiles. We've already seen this is the reality of the ongoing implications of Pentecost. The nations now are going to be gathered to Christ... Peter's sermon, they're there around him, immediately takes that into account. The promise is for all of you from the old covenant with your children. The promises for you Gentiles now, whom God's going to effectually call. Does he need to repeat, and your children? No. Obviously, in this context, if the promise is to you and your children and to those who are far off... Well, the promises in their children. And think what a problem you would have in the Jerusalem church. If here's the Jews in the church with their children, and here's the Gentiles, no, your children can't come in. If any of you tonight are still committed to cradle baptism, I want you to understand what Peter is promising in this text. He promises the gospel to all converts and their children, and our children are incorporated into the church. Does it mean they're saved? But they are part of God's people, with their responsibility then, to take covenant with God. And so you children who have been baptized, it's a wonderful thing that God's done for you to bring you into His church, and He has sworn certain things to you. He said, "I'm your God." He said, "You're my child." But then He obligates you young people, children, to make covenant with Him. He says, "Now you must come, take hold, not of your daddy's savior." Not of your mommy's Savior. You must come and take Christ as your Savior. But the promise is still there for us and for our children. And it's a glorious reality. Great encouragement for these people to repent. So he gives them instruction. He encourages them with these promises. Remission of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit, which wraps it all up in the great covenant promise. I am your God, and you are my people. From Genesis to Revelation, again and again and again, I am your God, you're my people. That happens through remission of sins and gift of the Holy Spirit. But notice he doesn't stop there. He then gives further exhortation in verse 40. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. He's identified them as a part of this wicked generation that crucified the Messiah. They were wrapped up in all of the sin and hardness of heart and self-righteousness of that. And Peter's warning them, this is a wicked generation. It's a perverse generation. And you stay with this generation, you should go to hell. What I really want to emphasize here is that with further words, he exhorted and encouraged them. You see, I think this is a... Serious lapse in Reformed preaching. I don't hear a lot of Reformed preachers, oh, offer Christ and call people to repent. But pleading with sinners from the pulpit, exhorting them, begging them for Christ's sake, giving them arguments, the threats of hell and condemnation, that's what we're called to do in our gospel preaching, as well as to preach the law. That's what led to all of this, isn't it? He brought them under conviction of sin, then calls them to Christ, and then doesn't stop calling them to Christ, but pleads and exhorts. And you know, I pray that God gives me more grace to do that and for all of our Reformed ministers. But for us, what we see then is that this is a confidence that that we can have because what happens then is a response of the sinners. After this sermon, we read in verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added. So now the Spirit worked and brought thousands of people into the church, in one sermon. And this is not a a once and for all thing. You read then through these first two chapters of Acts in chapter 4, verse 4. Many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Chapter 5, verse 14. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. We fast forward to Antioch where the gospel was first preach to the um, Gentiles. I've got the pastor's Bible here. I'm not quite used to this Bible, but anyway. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. This is what was happening. Now, that happens in revival in much larger proportion. But our God loves to save sinners. 3,000 souls that day. Now, let me point out, when it says 3,000 were baptized, I believe that's men, women, and children. When the Bible uses the word souls, it uses for families. So Jacob went down to Egypt, 70 souls, and that was the adults and the children. So it's not saying that 30 to 3,000 all repented and believed, but 3,000 were baptized, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment but great numbers, thousands. It says daily we're being added to the church. Now, long for such days. But do you really believe that God saves sinners in our day and in Reformed churches? Do we really have any adult baptisms? No, we should, we should believe that God's going to use the church to save people, and, and we, we have to have a confidence of that. You remember what, Paul, what God said to Paul in Acts chapter 18. He's just come from Athens into Corinth. There's been a bit of a upheaval there in Corinth, and in verse 9 of chapter 18 of Acts, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. You believe in election. Do you think God's got any more elect in Minnow or this part of South Dakota? Or are you all, all brought in? No, we know that our God has got elect here and all over the world. And we know that he uses the church to gather them. And so we need to enter into our evangelism locally and denominationally and throughout the world with a confidence that God saves sinners and only God can save sinners and God delights to save sinners. It's His great work. We just don't believe it. But we need to believe it, you see. We need to pray for time's revival, but we need to live with the ordinary means of grace because Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, and that means if He's preached, I will draw all men to Myself. Paul said, I determined know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see what the Spirit, he's the Spirit of Christ, and He loves to exalt Christ. And so the Spirit, if you lift up Christ in your witnessing and in your preaching, the Spirit loves to shine the light on Christ and draw sinners to Christ. We've got to preach Christ. We've got to preach Christ though so with confidence. We've got to quit being beleaguered and, and thinking, well, this is just you know, who we are and, and we're not just going to see the... No, don't, don't fall into that. Go away from Pentecost and missions with the confidence that God is going to use you and this church to save sinners because that's what God delights to do. It's the second thing, that's commitment. And the commitment is church growth. So... I've already, you've seen the language here, but now I need to unpack it for you. So it says that 3,000 were baptized and were added to, and then there's no object in the Greek, were added. Other places it says added to the number. What is the number to which they were added? It is the role of the church. In the Old Covenant, there was a record of all of Old Covenant people. How do you think they put chronicles together without that? Uh, they'd been gone for 70 years, but they recovered the records. And those that didn't have four, they had to have supernatural. But, you know, all of these, this, you understand, this is part of why that's there. It's actually proof for the necessity of the visible church. So here we're told they were added, they were added to the number of the church. Now, that has to be the visible church, you understand. Because you can't be added to the number of the invisible church, can you? That's all of the elect that's in Christ Jesus from eternity. That number is set. So if they're added to a number, they're added to the registry of the visible church. And thus all proper biblical Holy Spirit evangelism must lead to church membership and church growth. This is why Calvin would say those... um, Unforgettable words, if you would have God as your father, you must have church as your mother. Or as the Western to Confession of Faith says, ordinarily, outside the church, there's no possibility of salvation. We live in a day of anti-authority, anti-tradition. We live in a day of anti-church. And we've got all these freelance professing Christians floating around. Maybe some are here tonight refusing to become a member in a church. Why? It's because of your pride. You don't want to be accountable. But you see, the Holy Spirit, when he converts people, he adds them to the church. The rest of the New Testament makes this very clear. How in the world can Paul tell the Thessalonians or the writer of the Hebrews tell them to respect their offices and submit to them? Because obviously, if you're not a member of the church, you don't have to do that, do you? But it's a biblical requirement. How can there be church discipline if you're not a member of the church? Because then, well, you're free, and nobody can hold you accountable. Now, everything about the New Testament teaches us the importance of being incorporated into the life of a visible church, which then leads us to understand that all proper evangelism leads to baptism and incorporation into the visible church. This is the relationship now of baptism. We saw its relationship to regeneration, remission of sins, but its first um, significance is it is the, the declaration of membership in the visible church. It's the entrance right, And that's, again, why we baptize our children. Not because we think they're saved, but we know they're members of the church. And baptism belongs to members of the church. And this is very important, then, because our evangelism must always focus on building the church and proper church growth. That's why it's great what your denomination is doing. You know, they're planting churches. They're not just sending out evangelists. No, you plant churches. You do evangelism in the context of a church so people can be incorporated into a church. The same thing on the mission field. So much of foreign missions went on people going around and, and, and trying to get people saved and did nothing with them. My wife had an ancestor. In fact, the, there was a Banner of Truth book I learned later that it was her ancestor, Ten Muslims Meet Christ. He was in Iran. I, But, yeah, 10 Muslims converted, no church ever planted. His own family was a mess because he galloped all over Iran. And rather than model for Muslims, here's what a Christian home is, and we have a Christian church. That's not proper missions, you see. It's not proper evangelism. That's why I'm very opposed to parachurch evangelism. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, paragraph 3, says the work of the church is for the gathering and perfecting of the elect. And unto that end, God has given her the ministry, uh, the word, and the ordinances with the promise and work of the Holy Spirit. All ties into what we have right here. The church, because we have the sacraments. We are part of propagating the church. And it's a good test for any type of evangelism. Does it lead to the growth of biblical churches? So, in our missions, home and foreign, there must always be this commitment. And I know you people do prize in a proper manner the role of the visible church. It's obvious in your devotion, and I encourage you in that because that is part of God's plan. So, confidence and commitment, and then call call to discipleship. So, we come now to verse 42. And they, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So as these people were incorporated into the church, what was the mark of their membership? Well, they were disciples. This was the call. This was now the end view. Again, evangelism is not to keep people from going to hell. It is to gather a people for the glory of the Lord God in the church who serve him in holiness. And thus, that's why immediately connected to the conversions and the growth of the church is this call to discipleship. And it's a fourfold call. The, the new converts, all the church together now, and I say new converts, realize that many of these people were already converted, they were faithful, and they simply have come now to embrace Jesus as, uh, as the promised Messiah in whom they've been believing. But altogether, with one mind, they committed to these four things. The first was the Apostles' Doctrine. Now, the bottom of that is Scripture. The Apostles' Doctrine was based on their doctrine of the Old Testament. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Holy men moved by the Holy Spirit. And then the Apostles, uh, by the Spirit of Christ, He promised them He'd bring to their memory everything, that he said and did, and then to interpret it accurately as well as to interpret the Old Testament accurately until finally, long after this verse, well, they gave us our New Testament. But what I want you to see here is the hunger that Christians should have for the Word of God. You get that language continually devoting themselves? How do we do that? Well. Are you daily in the Word, prayerfully seeking, as we sang, uh, for the Spirit to uh, teach you, lead you in what He has put in Scripture? Are you heads of family leading your family in searching the Scriptures together? But, of course, the primary place to which they were devoted and to which we must devote is the preaching of the Word of God. Because that is God's primary means of grace. They were meeting daily at the temple. What were they doing? The apostles. They hadn't even scripture. They made the Old Testament. But the apostles were preaching. This is why we are talking last night about Calvin uh, in Geneva. He was preaching three or four mornings a week because they didn't, have, they didn't have Bibles. They knew nothing about Christianity. And this was his way of discipling them. And then with their two services on the Sabbath, um, simply Committed to the Word of God in preaching. Are you committed to the Word of God in preaching? It is the primary way that you will be devoted to God's Word. It's the primary way that God is going to work in your life according to His revelation. And then study. First, you officers. Are you studying the Scriptures, but are you studying the standards of your church? And are you reading good Christian literature? Preparing yourselves Able to rebuke and to admonish and to teach, to lead the flock and watch over them. And all of us, we ought to be, have some program of Christian reading. You say, I don't, I'm not a reader. Great. You've got to go, coming up January, you're going to read one book, one good Christian book your pastor recommends in 2024. You do that, the next year you're going to get hungry, you're going to read two. But we have to be committed. Because God, we live in a day of such amazing resources. Be committed daily, continuing in apostles' doctrine. And do not neglect the work of the church, its preaching and its worship. And then they were daily committed, it says, to fellowship. Well, there's two aspects of this fellowship. One is the communion of the saints. There's a whole chapter in the Westminster Standards uh, on, on the communion of the saints. And because of our union in Christ... We are in union with one another. We're in God's family, all of us in the church. And this is the universal visible church. We're brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters here, though. And thus, we have a spiritual communion, which is first. A delight in one another, a delight of Christ in one another. Yes, around the table, uh, in our homes. But once again, and this is, you know, we, we don't do this well, many of us. Spiritual conversation. It's so easy we get together to talk about everything else, but we need to learn to encourage each other. God says in Malachi that when the fear of God, the God-fearers spoke to themselves about him, he took note and recorded it in a book. Let us seek to develop the facility for spiritual conversation, for encouraging one another both positively and, when necessary, by uh, an admonition, as we read in Hebrews uh, chapter 3. And, of course, again, the greatest communion of the saints that we have, according to that doctrine, is in corporate worship, when we now sit here together in the body of Christ. So it's spiritual, but it's also, as we see from this context, physical. And the word koinonia that's used here is used both for spiritual communion, but also it's used for uh, diaconal ministry, And so when it says that they were um, daily um, committed to the communion of the saints, then we see uh, how that worked out in their lives in verse 44. All who believed were together, had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as everyone had need. They were um, um, taking care of each other. Remember, all these people had come to Jerusalem. They didn't go back home. And so Jerusalem didn't quite have a job market to handle uh, these thousands of people that were there and converted and part of the church. So what was the church going to do? Let me tell you, this isn't Christian communism. This is simply Christian common sense because the saints now knew that in less than 40 years, it was all going to be burned down. And so if it's all going to be burned down, you cannot leave it to your children or your grandchildren. Um, And you got... Poor Christians amongst you, well, let's take advantage of this now. God gave us this now so we can help each other. It doesn't become, it's not a principle uh, to guide the church. The principle is that we take care of one another according to the means that God has given to us. And we are committed to that, and that's why God gave the office of deacon to the church to guide the rest of us uh, in this work then of benevolent ministry. And again, it's so providential that today is the benevolent offering here uh, in our services. And then next, they were continually committed to the breaking of bread. Now, this also has a twofold sense. It is a technical name for the Lord's Supper. They were not having the Lord's Supper infrequently. They were having the Lord's Supper, you could interpret it daily, but there's clear indications to have the Lord's Supper weekly. Um, uh, I don't guess they were in danger of, of taking it for granted since... Out of their enthusiasm, that's what they were doing. They were committed, committed, were daily committed. They were sacramental. Regardless of how you work it out, there needs to be a frequency to which you are committed. It's a wonderful, wonderful sacrament, a privilege that God gives to us to feed on Christ, to be strengthened, to be granted assurance and help in our pilgrimage and our struggles, to feed on Christ who's spiritually present with us. And, of course, this implies baptism. We've already seen they were baptized. But then baptism is the entrance to the Lord's table. So they were, they were sac. We're not, I don't know about you guys, the RCUS, but I know a lot of Presbyterian churches, really, I wouldn't call them sacramental. And that has, can have a bad tone, but we need to become sacramental. Highly committed to not just the use of the sacraments, but the, the faithful meditation and spiritual use of what we get in the sacraments. Even in the larger catechism of the Westminster, there's a question on how do you improve your baptism? That we should be thinking, I would say daily, about our baptism and what it means to us. So they they were committed to the sacraments. And then they were committed, fourthly, to being a praying people. The word literally is committed to the prayers. So in the first place, that word is used for corporate worship. And so as they were daily together, they were having table fellowship, I skipped over the fact they also were taking meals together, not just the Lord's Supper, but they were together, but they were, were together in worship of God. They didn't have a church building, even this size, you see? They had to meet in the temple complex because of so many of them, and then they would meet in the larger houses that the upper room in John Mark's house and, and these various places. It was not until the fourth century that the church really began to build church buildings. And so they were meeting in larger private homes uh, as they were available. But they were meeting together um, to worship God. Notice that they were praising him. Um, Verse 47, praising God, yes, uh, impromptu, but also in corporate worship. Meeting to praise God. So a worshiping church, but a praying church. Now, I think this is probably the greatest weakness, at least in my involvement with Reformed churches. You know, interesting, we uh, confess this morning with respect to prayer that it's the chief part of the thankfulness which God requires of us because God will give His, God will give His grace and Holy Spirit only to those who earnestly, without ceasing, Ask them of Him. Why are so few people being converted in our churches? Prayerlessness is one of the reasons. We're told here, you confessed, you believe this, that we'd be earnestly, earnestly, unceasingly seeking God to do these things by the Holy Spirit. You should be praying. You should be praying in private in prayer and together as a congregation, and not just in corporate worship. Remember, when was the Holy Spirit given? Where? In a prayer meeting. What were they doing daily? They were meeting together for prayer. What they do in Acts four when they were threatened? At a prayer meeting. Throughout the ages, the Reformed Church has grown as she has been committed to pleading with God to pour out the Holy Spirit. I encourage you to pray, to pray for neighbors, friends. Pray for them by name. Pray that God gives you opportunity to speak to them. Pray that he will do great works of conversion and church growth here in your midst. And then the other aspect of this discipleship is then what this made them as a people. Verse 47, they had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You see, when you and I live a Christian life, people see our Christian homes, and when they see our Christian congregations, it's like a lamp at night attracting moths. Really is. I've had the privilege over the years of being president of the seminary to you know be talking to new students and asking them how they came to Christ. And you know, you think it's kind of trite, but you you would be surprised how many men tell me, I had this friend in college, or I saw this family, and they had something I didn't have, and I wanted it. The Spirit uses that, He uses you and your families and in this beautiful congregation. You're a light shining for Christ. And as you are ordered in worship and fearing God, which is what they were doing through all of their discipleship, honoring Him, loving Him, obeying Him, they found favor with the people. And may God grant that you find favor with the people. So here's where Pentecost brings us then this afternoon. Because of the, of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, we can confidently, you can confidently as a people, as individuals, as a congregation, other congregations represented, um, seek to bring the lost to Christ and to see the church grow and to make disciples. Because that's what God will do. He'll do it in your life. He'll do it in your congregation. And he will greatly honor himself. Through this. Now, here, I praise you. One of the things that you do is you release your pastor to go out and help with these churches. That is something that some congregations probably wouldn't do. But you do. You've got that commitment to home missions. Do you have that commitment to what I call the Jerusalem mandate? And I get that from Acts chapter 1. Go first to Jerusalem. Then Judea, then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. This region is your Jerusalem, my friends. Have as much vision for here as you do for Montana or the Philippines or the Congo or these mission trips. I commend you for these mission trips, but you've got to start at home. Missions is not something that's just done there, it's done here. It's evangelism, it's church growth. It's seeing God convert people through this congregation and the church built up and the disciples mentored in the faith. And then continue in your commitments to spread the gospel throughout. First the bounds of your own classes and then this nation and then the world. And do it with a Pentecostal confidence because this is what Pentecost is all about. Let's stand for prayer. <clears throat> oh, holy God, we bless you that in Pentecost you have set before us the goal of missions. You, Lord, you have taught us here from your Word that we are to um, have a confidence in conversions and a commitment to building up the church and a call to discipleship to those who. Will be committed to your word and to prayer and fellowship, to sacraments, to those who fear God, to those who then help one another, to those who then uh, are attractive in their lifestyle and commitment to the world. We're greatly encouraged, Lord, because this is all your work and not ours. You've given us the Holy Spirit, and we pray that uh, He will be blessing this message and other things to our encouragement. And Lord, that you bless this dear congregation. We thank you, Lord, for your work here and your faithfulness for the families you're gathering together. May it just be the first fruits, Lord. A great gospel revival here and then throughout the region, even unto uh, South Dakota, our nation, Lord, the ends of the earth. Lord, have mercy for Christ's sake. We pray this as he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven,